This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. At Mysteries at Midnight, be your destination for detective whodunits and captivating mystery stories. You'll hear classic stories like Sherlock Holmes, Agatha Christie's Poirot, and short tales from H.G. Wells, Charles Dickens, Edgar Allan Poe, and others. I'm Christopher, and I read these classic stories in the soothing style of a bedtime story, so you can listen to them in bed when you drift off to sleep. Search for Mysteries at Midnight on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favourite podcast app, and follow and subscribe so you don't miss out on new episodes. Hello. My name is Devin, writer and host of Human Circus, Journeys in the Medieval World, the podcast where we follow medieval history through the stories of its travelers. There are Franciscan monks going overland to visit the Mongols, Florentine silk merchants at the Sultan's court in Cairo, Abbasid envoys observing Viking funerals, and a medieval bestseller an English knight who perhaps didn't exist at all. There's Prester John, and there's dog-headed men, and there are accounts of the miraculous and the strange. For those stories and more, join me on Human Circus Journeys in the Medieval World. Welcome to Pax Britannica. Season 2, Episode 11, Hearts and Minds. Welcome back to Pax Britannica. I'm your host, Samuel Hume. Last time, we looked at how Charles I and his court tried to prepare for a new war with the Covenant of Scots. A parliament was summoned in both England and Ireland. The Irish Assembly granted the king taxation and condemned the rebels. The English dragged their feet, insisting that they had grievances that must be addressed. After all, it had been 11 years since the last English Parliament, and during the personal rule, the king had resorted to unpopular and outright illegal practices to govern. Worse for Charles, several leading critics of his regime in Parliament were openly sympathetic to the Covenanters, both because they agreed with their aims, and because they were a useful vehicle for constitutional reform in England. Despite being promised some concessions, the English Parliament did not grant Charles taxation, and the King dissolved the body after only three weeks. This was the Short Parliament. 
The sympathy of the Puritan opposition for the Covenanters was hardly a secret, and their collaboration with the rebels was suspected. The day after the dissolution, royal agents ransacked the rooms of several of the leading critics in both the House of Lords and the House of Commons, and their names will be familiar. The Earl of Warwick, Lord Brooke, Viscount Say and Seely in the Lords, and John Pym, John Hamden, and Sir Walter Earl in the Commons. However, if they were collaborating with the Covenanters at this stage, they'd kept the evidence well hidden, as nothing was found and the men were not imprisoned for treason, despite what the rumour mill claimed at the time. But Parliament was not the only assembly which had gathered in April 1640. As tradition dictated, a convocation of the Church of England had met. Tradition also dictated that when Parliament was dissolved, so too was the convocation, but what use is tradition if you can't ignore the inconvenient bits? Charles kept the convocation in session until it confirmed 17 new canons, church laws. If you recall last time, one of the proposed concessions that the king was willing to make in return for taxation was to prevent the convocation from doing exactly this. These new canons were certainly a product of their time, based on the events of the personal rule as well as the Scottish reaction to them. They made it expressly clear that the king's authority was sacrosanct. At least four times a year, clergy were to declare the divine right of kings. Bearing arms against royal authority, for any reason, was not only treason, but bordering on blasphemy. It also demanded that Charles's subjects defend the realm when called upon. They also confirmed many of the Laudian reforms, such as relocating the communion table and railing it off. One canon urged the clergy to crack down on Catholicism and popish superstition, but another applied the same to Puritans. Once again, the official view of Puritans as just as bad as Catholics was made clear to all. Both threatened the hierarchy of the church, and both led to unrest and harmed the common wheel. Naturally, this was not a comparison that the hotter sort of Protestant enjoyed. Canon 6 was perhaps one of the most controversial. Clergy were required to swear an oath by the 2nd of November that year to show they approved of and would defend the church organisation as it currently stood. The doctrine and the discipline of the Church of England, the oath stated, were necessary for salvation. To no one's surprise, the Puritans were incensed by the canons, but so were many conformists, especially over Canon 6. Across the kingdom, ministers publicly criticised the oath. It had been long-standing doctrine that only the discipline demanded by scripture was necessary for salvation. Everything else could, and often should, be changed or removed. Now they were expected to swear an oath that the discipline, including the Laudian reforms which had no scriptural basis, was itself sacrosanct. It was also argued that this canon effectively placed the church hierarchy above the king, undermining the royal supremacy. What followed was widespread unrest and disobedience to state authority. Sometimes this was relatively peaceful, such as a gathering of clergy in Kettering on the 25th of August. 
they agreed that they would not take the Canon Six Oath. At other times, it was anything but peaceful, such as on the 11th of May, when hundreds of apprentices formed a mob and armed themselves with whatever crude weapons they could find. They marched to the beat of a drum, all good mobs need a drummer, and stormed Lambeth Palace, the London residence of the Archbishop of Canterbury. The mob was looking for the current holder of that office, William Lord, but Lord had rather sensibly sailed down the Thames to safety an hour before. Drumming mobs of youths are not the most subtle of things, and the Archbishop would have had plenty of warning. The gathering had also been arranged through printed leaflets, scattered throughout London, so it was hardly a bolt from the blue. The mob dispersed after a few hours of roaming the palace and presumably made off with quite a bit of loot. They ominously warned that they would speak with the Archbishop one way or another. The government had other ideas. Over the next day, the ringleaders of the mob were arrested and imprisoned in Southwark Jail, which in turn led to another mob forming on the 13th, which stormed the prison to free their comrades. The reaction of the government to this jailbreak was harsh. One ringleader has the questionable honour of being the last person judicially tortured in England after refusing to confess. He was placed on the rack, the infamous device where a person's hands and feet are chained together at either end. The mechanism of the rack was turned, and the unfortunate victim was then stretched, leading to dislocated limbs and just a general agony. Not nice. Another ringleader was convicted for treason, and faced the traitor's death, to be hanged, drawn, and quartered. That's possibly even worse. This was not the end of public opposition to the government, especially as the king tried to raise an army without parliamentary taxation. In Essex, one man was charged with saying if he were, quote, pressed for a soldier, the king should be the first that I would aim at. He was acquitted by the jury which is perhaps itself a signal of how widespread opposition to the king was by this stage, at least in Essex. As we saw with the build-up to the First Bishop's War, many trained militiamen were unwilling to serve outside of their home counties, and instead they paid a fee. Their replacements were usually conscripted vagrants and other quote-unquote undesirables who had often never held a weapon before in their lives. Naturally, an army of conscripts and unwilling soldiers were just as likely to desert, or use their weapons on their own commanders as they were the enemy. Over 20 counties had mutinies from their militias. In June, a lieutenant was beaten to death by his own troops, and another lieutenant faced the same fate in July. These men were infamously cruel to their recruits, and were also rumoured to be Catholic. These two cases were not the only occasions where religious feeling motivated violence from the royal army. Multiple churches were assaulted by soldiers in iconoclastic riots. Stained glass was smashed, communion rails torn out. At Radwinter Church, again in Essex, the soldiers did all of this and more. The images were removed, tied to a tree, whipped, and then carried five miles to a local town to be burned in the square. The minister for this church was called Richard Drake, which is only relevant because they couldn't find him. So instead, the soldiers caught a male duck, ripped off the poor thing's head, and then threw it into the church. A male duck is called a drake, and so it was a particularly blunt and bloody metaphor. In Kent, one trooper had the surname B, 
bishop, and so he was dressed in a bishop's costume, complete with white sleeves and white cape. Then he was tried in a mock court, found guilty, and then sentenced to death. Unlike the duck, this was only a mock execution, and he was only hanged in jest. Of course, how much of this was a reaction to disagreements on the finer points of Laudian theology is impossible to say. Tim Harris, in Rebellion, puts it nicely, quote, Although some were doubtless giving vent to their anger at the recent Laudian innovations in the church, others were swayed by a cruder form of anti-Catholic bigotry, a more generalised hostility towards the government, and a resentment against the way they were being treated in the army. End quote. Many of those brought up on charges relating to the vandalism of Laudian churches were hardly the stereotypical Puritan. One John Ailey, again from Essex, was charged for vandalism, but he had a rap sheet as long as his arm, and it wasn't for pious resistance to popery. Less zealous Puritanism, more sex outside of marriage and general antisocial behaviour. But, as Harris argues, this is exactly the point. It wasn't just the zealous, die-hard Puritans who were angry with the government. Ordinary, conforming English had plenty of reasons to resent the state, and Laudian reforms presented obvious and usually vulnerable symbols of that state. As we touched on last time, the Covenanters were exceptionally good at getting their arguments into England, and they weren't limiting their audience just to MPs and peers. Pamphlets and tracts were printed in Scotland or the Netherlands, and then smuggled south of the border or across the Channel, while underground prints within England copied them. Personal letters to contacts in England were shared and distributed. Both public and private documents were reprinted en masse and given as wide an audience as possible. Once again, the sympathies of the English Puritans with Scottish Covenanters paid dividends. England was already honeycombed with networks of corresponding Puritans, who were well used to avoiding official scrutiny. Covenant tracts were eagerly disseminated through these connections, allowing an explosive growth in audience. But they weren't limited solely to those already at odds with official religious policy. Major cities, including London, had their streets covered in cheaply printed copies of various Covenanter pamphlets. Sporting events and other large gatherings were targeted, with attendees arriving to find copies waiting for them. You couldn't even have a drink without someone standing on a chair in the inn and reading out the latest Covenant attract, and often to a chorus of appreciative cheers. And of course, the mustering Royalist army was full of Covenant propaganda. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hi, I'm Matt Albers, host of the Pirate History Podcast. The men and women of the golden age of piracy are some of the most infamous and often misunderstood characters in all of human history. You know their names. Captain Morgan, 
Anne Bonny, Henry Avery, Mary Reed, Captain Kidd, Blackbeard. But do you know their stories, their real stories? Every week over on the Pirate History Podcast, we explore the real lives of these pirates. We examine what made these pirates sail the high seas in search of plunder and adventure and revenge. The real stories are a lot more complex and a lot more interesting than the stories most of us have been told. If you'd like to hear the stories of the real men and women who went on the account and sailed under the black flag, join us on the Pirate History Podcast. The Covenant has also made sure to spread their message within Scotland. By this stage, the National Covenant was over a year old, and already the national element of it had begun to fracture. It was all very well getting swept up in the excitement of the previous year, and putting your name to the copy of the Covenant which was making its way through your parish, but now that this path had led to a war with the King, and looked likely to lead to another, there were many in Scotland with cold feet, and not just because of the climate. Add this reluctance to the ever-present factionalism within Scottish society, as well as the growing sacrifices which the defence of the Covenant was now inflicting on taxpayers and merchants, and you had a government in Edinburgh very concerned with keeping everyone on the same page. Covenant of propagandists drew on the past. Tracts which had justified and explained the rebellion against Mary, Queen of Scots, were republished from 1638. They showed that the Scots had a right and a heritage of resisting royal tyranny. But in their original writings, the Covenanters pulled back from the more extreme elements of Marian rhetoric. That had, after all, led to the Queen being deposed. Very few of the Covenanters were interested in getting rid of Charles, just restricting his role in the government. Those that did hope for his replacement were wise enough to know that this was hardly a vote winner, in Scotland or in the other Stuart kingdoms. Many Covenanter works instead insisted that they were acting defensively, resisting the illegal actions of evil counsellors who wanted to destroy the Kirk. Again and again, Covenanter publications tried to balance their loyalty to the king and their right to resist his policies. Put another way, they were expressly loyal to the institution of the monarchy, but they reserved the right to challenge the person currently sitting in the throne. As we covered last time, the Covenanters went out of their way to reassure the English that they were not their enemy. Quote, We take arms not for invasion, not for alteration of the civil government, not for wronging any man's person, or to possess what belongeth to any man, but for the defence of our religion, liberties, and lives. So said the Remonstrants. However, some in England sided with the Covenanters without needing to be convinced. Many saw their cause as a fight against lordianism and creeping popery, and they shared these same aims. A minister in Stockport, in the northwest of England, gave an Easter service in 1639 that essentially said that Charles should never have become king, and it would have been better for Protestants everywhere if Prince Henry had not died so young. Also in 1639, the Venetian ambassador questioned whether the king would be able to find anyone to fight the Scots, and stated that London was entirely in their favour. 
cases came before the Assizes throughout 1638, 1639, and 1640, for merchants, ministers, and gentry making their sympathies for the Covenanters known. Again, I'll quote from Harris here, quote, Typical in this regard are the remarks of a Southwark man, Godfrey Cade, in June 1639, who said that he thought, quote, The Bishop of Canterbury and the rest of the bishops were the cause of this mutiny in Scotland, that the Bishop of Canterbury was the Pope of Lambeth, and that he doth pluck the royal crown off his majesty's head and trample it under his foot, and did whip his majesty's arse with his own rod. Given the chance to recant the next morning, after he'd sobered up, Cade instead reaffirmed what he'd said, adding that the Book of Common Prayer was false, and that he would maintain it. Prove it. End quote. Others may have been more careful, but still shared Cade's views. A letter was found in Hertfordshire in March 1639 addressed to the king, from one of the soldiers en route to the border. It urged Charles not to kill the innocent Covenanters, and instead to deal with his enemies at home, the Laudians. A captain recruited to serve in the upcoming Second Bishops' War was reported to have said that he would fight on the side of whoever was fighting against the Pope, though he also claimed credit for vandalising a Laudian church, so it was clear whose side he would pick. Many Puritans saw the Covenanters as God's will, as providence come to punish England and to rescue it from the Laudians. At times, Covenanter sympathies went beyond mere words. Government agents intercepted a delivery of weapons intended for the Covenanters, including flails and knives, and found they'd been forged in Sheffield. It's impossible to know for sure how widespread Covenanter sympathies were in England, and I don't want to overemphasise them, but it's clear that they weren't isolated just to elites in Parliament, and they weren't limited to zealous Puritans. There were certainly enough people siding with the Covenanters for Charles's government to be seriously concerned. The Royalists tried to match the Covenanters in the battle for public opinion, with a particularly notable reliance on the clergy. Several defences of royal authority and condemnations of the Covenanters appeared from various bishops and theologians. They described the Covenanters as having various revolutionary aims, not least the abolition of the monarchy. Many claimed that the Covenanters, by resisting the king's authority, were acting like Catholics who denied the royal supremacy. What makes this tactic interesting, and something that shows that someone making these decisions had their head screwed on, is that very few of these writings came from Laudians. Unlike earlier in the decade, when Laudian-aligned bishops defended Laudian practices, the Royalists instead drew on Scottish clergy in Ireland, the English Calvinist Bishop of Durham, and a French Huguenot. They were anti-Covenanter, but not pro-Laudian, despite defending a government that was. It was a brilliant tactic, and it might have had a great effect. But most of these works were aimed at a very specific audience. The elites, both secular and ecclesiastical. One piece, the large declaration concerning the late tumults in Scotland, was huge and expensive. It wouldn't compete with Covenanter pamphlets and posters plastered all over the cities, but it wasn't meant to. Its sequel was published just before the meeting of the short parliament, aimed at a market which could afford it and would, theoretically, want to read it, the MPs, and so convince them to support the government. 
It was a different strategy, aimed at providing allies of the government with arguments that they could then use to convince the public, rather than trying to convince the public directly. Compared to the wider distribution achieved by the Covenanters, it's hard to measure its effectiveness. One thing which the Royalist propagandists generally steered clear of was relying on anti-Scottish bigotry. After all, Charles still had loyal Scottish subjects, and for the military offensive he had in mind, he needed their help. It would do no good to paint all Scots as traitors. Most official propaganda noted the explicit divide between these loyal Scots and the rebellious Covenanters, a divide which, as we've mentioned, is often sidelined. However, xenophobia was a powerful motivator to aid in recruitment, despite four decades of sharing the same king. Laudian clergy, deprived of their role in the large-scale propaganda war, railed against the Scots from the pulpit, and printed anti-Scottish tracts were very popular. And so for those English soldiers who eagerly marched north, and there were some, some were motivated by a dislike of Scots. A Puritan diarist records how one soldier swore he wouldn't return home until he'd ripped out the heart of a Scot with his own hand. The diarist claimed that soldier had his arm permanently wounded as a sign of God's providence. A royalist captain, Thomas Windbank, claimed that a contingent of troops sent to Berwick in June 1639 had, quote, hopes of robbing, fobbing, and scrubbing those scurvy, filthy, dirty, nasty, lousy, itchy, scabby, shitten, stinking, slovenly, snotty-nosed, logger-headed, foolish, insolent, proud, beggarly, impertinent, absurd, grout-headed, villainous, barbarous, bestial, false, lying, roguish, devilish, long-eared, short-haired, damnable, atheistical, puritanical, crew of the Scotch Covenant, end quote. Now isn't that a quote? I think it's more likely that Captain Windbank was venting his own dislike and brushing up on his vocabulary than he was merely recording the words of his troops. And, for what it's worth, I've lived in Scotland for many years now, and almost none of the Scots I've met have been shitten. Next time, the Royalists and Covenanters will meet in battle once again. For the first time in almost a century and a half, a Scottish army will invade England. The last time this had happened, in 1513, it had culminated in the Battle of Flodden, where the King of Scots had been killed and the Scottish army destroyed. This will not be the fate of the Army of the Covenant. Unfortunately, that time will be a few weeks from now. I've given it a lot of thought, but as you might have noticed, this episode has been a week late. I was rather proud that since beginning the second season of Pax Britannica, I'd managed to keep up with the target of weekly episodes, but it's become clear over the last month that I'm just getting burnt out. I've been trying to balance writing for the podcast with working on the PhD and getting less work done on both. I've reached an important stage, and I really need time to dedicate solely to the thesis. So, for the next few weeks, or maybe months, you won't see regular content for Pax Britannica. But that's not to say you won't get any content. I'll still work on scripts when I can, and I'll prioritise Patreon content to reward my House of Lords, though I completely, completely understand if people want to suspend their pledges. I also have a few interviews lined up with some brilliant scholars, and there may be some guest episodes from other podcasters, so the feed will be anything but empty. 
In the meantime, please do spread the word about Pax Britannica to anyone you think will enjoy it. Word of mouth is still the single best way to grow any podcast after all. Thank you to everyone who's left ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts and elsewhere. Thank you to Katja Buchwald for donating to me through PayPal. Her donation was a lovely surprise. Lovely because it was such a nice gesture, and a surprise because I'd honestly forgotten I'd set that up. So, if Patreon is not your thing, either because you don't want to sign up for Patreon, or you don't want to make it a regular thing, you can send a one-off donation through PayPal to podbritannica at gmail.com. There's a link to do this in the footer of the website, which Katya had clearly found, but from now on I'll include that link in the show notes. That email, again, podbritannica at gmail.com, is also the best way to get in touch with me, though I'm also on Facebook and Twitter. Speaking of Patreon, there are some new members of the House of Lords. Tom Cosens, the Earl of Flanders, the first bishop to join the assembly, Jeremiah Thompson, Bishop of Murray, Judy, Viscountess of Boucher, Michael Caine, Viscount of Brackley, Nicholas, Baron Bargeman. They join the ranks of my House of Lords, including, but not limited to, my royal favourites, Andrew Shoemaker and Mike Sanders, the Duchess of Devon, Michelle Gersich, the royal headsman, executed today, the Duke of Clarence, Rory Martin, and the Duke of Ormond, Brendan Bonner. As always, if you'd like to join their ranks, you can go to patreon.com slash paxbritannica. Thank you, as always, to my entire House of Lords, to Sounds Like an Earful for the interval music used in today's episode, and to you for listening. <laughs>